Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show once again. Before we jump into it, I have a huge announcement to make. After three years of work, my new show, The G Word, is finally coming out this month on Netflix. It premieres on May 19th, and the trailer just dropped. So if you head to any of my social media accounts, at Adam Conover, wherever you follow me, you can watch the brand new trailer for my brand new show. It's a comedy documentary series about the federal government and all the crazy ways it affects our lives, both good and bad. I've been working on it for almost three years, and I am so excited. Excited for you to finally see it for the first time. And once again, it premieres May 19th on Netflix, so look for it there. And of course, I want to thank everyone who supports this show on Patreon. If you want to join our community and get access to bonus podcast episodes, our live community book club, and exclusive stand-up that I do not post anywhere else, head to patreon.com slash adamconover. That's patreon.com slash adamconover. But let's talk about this week's episode. You know, when I hosted Adam Ruins Everything, people would come to me all the time with things that they wanted me to ruin. And over and over again, one of the most popular requests was that people wanted me to ruin religion. As though with one 24-minute blast of basic cable info comedy, I could dismantle a foundational element of human society and existence. Now look, we never did an episode called Adam Ruins Religion, and the reason for that is that I never felt that religion is debunkable in the way that other claims are. Like, okay, I think what people wanted me to do was to make the argument that there is no God, or at least that, you know, the phenomena that we see happening in the world around us are not causally connected to an old white man with a beard sitting up in a cloud somewhere. And I never wanted to make that episode for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is there were a lot of people making it already. In the last few decades, plenty of scientists, philosophers, and general smug assholes have written books, made documentaries, and put out podcasts trying to prove that there is no God and say that science is a much better way to understand the world around us. And even though I do call myself an atheist and I do love science, I didn't really want to reproduce all those other people's work. But more importantly, I also think that that is a reductive ass way to look at religion. See, I don't think religion is actually in competition with science in that direct way. It's not people asking, why do things happen, and then deducing that, oh, some god made it so. Religion isn't just a set of beliefs. In fact, I'd argue it's not even primarily a set of beliefs. More importantly, religion is something that people do. It's a set of rituals, practices, traditions. And all of these are things that we do with other people. Religion isn't a form of science, it's part of our social lives, and it has been since pre-recorded history. The oldest known temple at Gebekli Tepe in Turkey was built 11 or 12,000 years ago. It predates agriculture. These prehistoric people who spent their time picking ticks off of each other and throwing rocks at gazelles were still dragging their families to church to the extent that they devoted an immense amount of effort to building those churches. So if we look at it that way, if we look at religion as a social phenomenon, well, then we have to start to admit that it seems like religion must play some social purpose in our lives for us to devote so much time to it, even before what we understand as civilization even started. Religion appears to be so important to human society that it causes us to chant, sing, compose music, to perform rituals marking the year and events in our lives, to produce monumental architecture, to literally die in order to build a monument. 
And then add to all that the fact that even though religions differ around the world, religion is present in practically every human society. Every human society devotes immense amounts of time and effort to it. So look, I say this as an atheist, as a person who considers myself to be non-religious, but maybe instead of trying to debunk religion, we should be trying to understand it. We should be asking, why is this so important to human societies that we devote so much resources to it? What purpose does religion serve that makes it seemingly indispensable in human life? Well, to answer that question, we have an incredible guest on the show today. I am so thrilled to have him here. His name is Robin Dunbar, and he is a living legend in anthropology and evolutionary psychology, which he teaches at Oxford. He's published hundreds of scientific articles and written or edited 20-something books. He's famous for pioneering a concept known as Dunbar's number, which says that humans have a hardwired limit on the number of relationships we can maintain. And you'll see in this interview how that concept plays a fascinating role in his explanation of religion. And he has a new book on that topic called How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Robin Dunbar. Robin Dunbar, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm thrilled to have you. Ah, it's a great pleasure. So uh, you've written a book about religion and where it came from. I'd love to start by asking you what I think should be an easy question, just so we uh, have our bases covered. What is religion? <laughs> oh, I think at the end of the day, and I suppose this is kind of the picture of the book, uh, is it's not all a kind of highfalutin theology and, and uh, that kind of stuff. What it really is about is a kind of intense emotional feeling that you have that you're kind of entering into the tr a transcendent world you're, you're somehow connecting with a spirit world so it's not a kind of mystical um deep down we can't quite put words to it because we don't have the words to express it kind of feeling mm. that you're engaging with if you like another mind let's say well, so that's really interesting that you center it around an experience that one has rather than so many people would talk about, well, it's an organization, it's an institution, there's there's doctrines uh -huh. and there's that sort of thing. Uh, why do you center it that way? Because I could imagine having experience like that. I could drop acid and have that experience. Right. And, and have that feeling. And a lot you of people would say indeed. that's not religion. Um, I, I, I kind of would disagree with them claiming it's not religion. It's probably not religion as you as an individual might experience it embedded in your own particular religion, whatever that may be. But it does build on those kind of, dare I say it, you know, 60s hippie acid trips, <laughs> you know, do have an, a, a, they do kind of build on that same mystical element, that same sense of, being in contact with some greater power that underpins all religions. And I, it, my argument is simply that that is what religion, when it first appeared in the course of human evolution, was like. And it's never gone away. That, that mystical uh, component is there at the base of all world religions as we have them now. What's happened in, if you like, historically over the last eight or 10,000 years only, is that we've kind of layered theological structures on top of these, these mm. 
basic underpinnings. And, and those theological structures have got more and more complex because initially, perhaps starting about eight, 10,000 years ago, at the beginning of the Neolithic, um, you have what, what we might call doctrinal religions appearing. So you've got a sort of doctrinal component layered on top of this mystical underpinning, but it's, it's a doctrinal component with gods that tend not to be interested in what humans do. They're very interested in you sacrificing to them, but that's about <laughs> it. And they're happy to punish you, or very keen to punish you, if you don't do the sacrifice right or generously enough. <laughs> yeah. um, but, and, you know, that phase lasted, you know, probably about uh, four or 5,000 years. And then during the first millennium BC, so roughly two to 3,000 years ago, you just have this sudden explosion of, what are sometimes referred to as the axial age religions or the world religions as we have them now. These are religions that have a, primarily a single high God. It's a moral high God who's genuinely interested in uh, us here mm -hmm. on earth, as it mm -hmm. were, and, and not just in that kind of punishing sense. I'm, you know, God is going to wag his finger uh, at you if you don't behave, uh, that's for sure. But uh, also, on the other hand, it's a, a mo much more benevolent sort of God who's interested in your uh, well-being and, 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 and happiness. So you can see these phases sort of gradually building yeah, through the, historical time. There is that shift between, you know, the Greek gods who are mainly concerned with like fucking and killing each other yes. versus <laughs> the Christian God who's like really is like, what's Adam up to? Like, is he living right? Like, let me keep an eye on this guy. And oh, he's had a little bit of trouble. Let me send a blessing at him. Like Zeus never really did that kind of thing. He just no, had he sex did. with people yeah. and, and right. murdered. That's right. Yeah. And uh, whereas the sort of later gods are inclined to send send messengers to wag their yeah. fingers at you in the form of prophets, biblical prophets, <laughs> if you like, or, or uh, uh, various kinds of religious uh, figures who, who, who might sort of wag their finger at you from the pulpit. But you feel that those doctrines, you know, the, the all of the body of theology of the Catholic Church or Martin Luther's precepts hammered on the church door or, um, you know, the, I don't know, the Buddhist polycanon or whatever you want to say, any kind of scripture. Those are all just sort of what later inventions that we've attached onto this root experience of mysticism that you feel underlies all religion? Essentially, yes. Uh, but this is really seems to be related to the growing need to manage um, the frictions of living together in very large communities. So mm. the, these these uh, further phases seem to come in at, at quite specific stages. So the doctrinal religions seem to appear at the beginning of the Neolithic, when people are first starting to live in settled settlements in villages, and then you know small towns of the kind you find scattered all over, you know, the Levant and uh, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and other places too, um, uh, uh, where the stresses of living together, um, obviously in California, you know, there are no such things as stresses, but if you live in <laughs> London... <laughs> We've got a few, to, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> stick my to London. Stick from, to London. My grandmother's from California. <laughs> Don't knock it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, you know, if you're a commuter in, in, in London or somewhere like that, you have to call Tokyo or whatever. You have to contend with the subway every morning. Uh, and probably, you know, sort of the subway in New York at, at the moment, you know, is just, you know, full of stresses that uh, you could do without. And it sets you up bad for the day and the rest of the day is rubbish. And, you know, you yes. probably behave badly as a consequence of that, just to sort of, you know, sort of offload some of you, the grief that's that's uh, driving you crazy. Yes. So, you know, what these doctrinal religions seem to do is to come in to try and manage that and just hold the lid down on it so it doesn't explode and kind of destroy the, the, the uh, community uh, and drive everybody away by people behaving unusually badly. Um, and, and, the, they do, and they do that, what, by leveling some form of social control by saying, well, well, one must not covet thy neighbor's wife because there's too much wife coveting yeah, going on. Yeah, I think I, those tend to, although, you know, those kind of prescriptions, as in the Ten Commandments and so on, uh, seem to come in much more with the axial age religions a bit further down the road. Uh -huh. But I think what initially happens is the you've got a phase of having a kind of god who 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 seriously wags wags his or her finger at, 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 at the miscreants down below and tries to keep them in order in effect and it's just a way of trying to sort of prevent them uh flying off the handle um the moment somebody you know stresses them out or is is dumps on them as it were so, yeah. but certainly you know at, you know we're talking at that stage we're talking about you know villages of maybe a thousand people yeah. um, uh, um, you know by modern standards quite small but still you know they're, they're stressful places to live later on once you get the axial age religions sort of beginning about three thousand years ago then now you're into kind of political units nation well no, they're not nation states at that point but city states and that kind of thing of a million people and that seems to be the threshold at that point two things uh, um, uh, uh, come in. One, one is moral high gods who who are seriously interested in, in your good behaviour, um, but also you know a much stronger sense of theology. And what even at the doctrinal stage, what the theology is doing is is kind of giving you a reason to turn up every week uh, mm. or whatever to go through the rituals, if you like, the church services to take part in the religion services to get the kind of inoculation that um, the rituals of, of religions actually give you. Yeah. So it's coming, it's, it's a kind of bottom up and a top down because it's kind of saying, no, 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 just keep turning up, you know, and you'll feel better for it. It's like going and, you know, having a weekly session uh, at, at, at a stand-up uh, uh, comedy show and you come out <laughs> just feeling the world is better <laughs> and if you keep going the world looks really good from week to week but if you stop going boy does it look shit oh my god that is perhaps the best pitch for why people should go to stand-up comedy shows i've ever heard thank you for that it is true it's a form of it's a form of religion it uh uh makes things a little bit lighter for you please go out and support your local comedy clubs everybody especially as we come back from all those closures because of COVID. um but okay uh, th a lot of this makes sense to me um but something i'm very curious about though is 
Uh, I just read as part of our community book club that we do with this podcast uh, for our Patreon subscribers, just read a book called Four Lost Cities by Annalie Newitz, a previous guest on the show. And, and they write about how a lot of very early, probably post-Neolithic, but you know, a lot of very early human cities were were almost built around religion, that the only way to explain the way that you know, people gathered in a certain area and the way they built their homes were were because of religious reasons that, you know, we, we might not know that much about the religion, but we can tell that. And what that made me think about is uh, what what benefit does that does religion have that early in human civilization? If you're literally saying, hey, let's build a giant earthwork, let's, um, you know, devote thousands and thousands of person hours to moving earth and stone around uh, for an immaterial reason, because someone ate a mushroom and, and had a vision, right? <laughs> um, that would seem to be suboptimal if you're looking at it from a very, you know, uh, neo-Darwinian kind of lens. Um, so what, uh, what is your view on that? Okay, so, so I think, you know, if you go a step back to the previous period, which probably goes right back to the appearance of archaic humans, um, so people like the Neanderthals, somewhere around 500,000 years ago, um, right through, in effect, to the Neolithic. You have this period of kind of mystical type religions that are very much based around trance and kind of, if you, if you, as you might say, kind of weird experiences in, in deep caves where you become disoriented and, mm. and, and kind of the mind you know, sort of uh, goes into freewheeling the, the, and into, you know, trance and, you know, you enter the spirit world and you can travel around the spirit world and have these, these kind of experiences. What that seems to arise in terms of is simply bonding the communities uh, that they were living in. But these are small-scale communities and, and those kind of religions still exist. They're basically characteristic of all and gatherers. They don't have a moral code that's justified by God or theology. They have a moral code, but it's just a social one. You know, mm -hmm. it, this is what we do because it's always how we've done it. You know, there's no argument. Um, but that's completely separate from their religious experiences. Uh, there, there, there are no gods. Um, there are kind of demons and good spirits and stuff in the sky or in wells or you know in springs and in trees and all these kind of things. Um, uh, there are no priests as such. It's a kind of immersive religion. Everybody takes part in it, and they're almost always centered around trance and, and the entering a trance state either through dance or singing or music mm. or, or, or what have you. Um, and, and that is very, seems to be very good at bonding uh, small-scale societies where you're dealing with, with really quite small groups. And the reason I think is... Well, the reason we've come to the conclusion that it does this is that trance tri is triggered by the endorphin system in the brain. Now, the endorphin system is actually part and parcel of the social bonding mechanism for all monkeys and apes and humans. Hmm. So monkeys and apes trigger it by uh, social grooming, you know, leafing through the fern. The le action of leafing through the fern triggers the endorphin system in the brain via hmm. a very specialized neural system. Um, and we still do that. You know, that's why physical touch is so important in our closer relationships. You know, it's not the sort of thing you do with strangers, heaven forth yeah. end. Uh, but, you know, with our closer family and, and friends, perhaps maybe 50 people in total only, you know, we do a lot of casual touching, you know, 
hugs and caresses yeah. and, 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 you know, strokes on the arm and an arm around the shoulder. And that kind of thing goes on all the time and it's triggering the endorphin system. But what happened is once we got to the sort of archaic human stage half a million years ago, there was a push to increase group sizes and, and to deal with kind of external threats in the environment, uh, which went beyond or push groups beyond the size that could be bonded just by grooming alone. What we did was find a whole lot of things that triggered the endorphin system uh, huh. without having to involve physical touch because the, the problem with physical touch, as we well know, uh, both for monkeys and ourselves, is the, the intimacy of it means you can only do it with one person at a time yeah. and you don't have infinite time, so you can't do it with large numbers of people. And in fact, it seems that groups of about 50 is the limit you can bond in this way. So when we want to push our group sizes beyond that, we had to find these other mechanisms. And what came into play successively were laughter, singing and dancing, singing probably without words, then the evolution of language kicked in and we had feasting, um, um, eating together, drinking alcohol together in particular, uh, turns out to be a very good trigger of the endorphin system and uh, telling very sad stories um, and the rituals of religion. And we've shown that all of these trigger the endorphin system and make you feel very bonded to the people you're engaged in it with. So without necessarily having to physically touch them. So it's kind of like grooming at a distance. So religion's in that mix very early on. Um, mm. As I said, from perhaps our archaic humans of 500,000 years ago. And, and that kind of worked pretty well, I think. But, you know, it's once you get them living in, in groups and in, in settled groups that are larger than the kind of standard groups of hunter-gatherers that you kind of hit the next problem. And the next problem, and, and that's just created by the stresses of living in, in large groups. And what that demanded was something that was a bit more tough. And, and religion seems to be particularly good at handling that problem. So of keeping the lid on these kind of, kind of stresses by trick, well, it's the rituals of religion that you engage in, and particularly the synchronized rituals you think you know what do we do we sing hymns or chant uh bits of the pali canon or whatever it may be uh in in all the big religions you know that that's a a, a thing that's going on in in unison if you like in in very close synchrony lots yeah. of religions dance you know they dance the coptic uh, christians in ethiopia the deacons dance before the tabernacle the altar um uh, uh in memory of uh King David dancing before the tabernacle. Um, and it's a, what's interesting about that, it's a very slow, um, uh, swaying kind of movement. It's not a frenetic dance, it's very slow. And that seems to be particularly good, that slow movement in triggering the endorphin system. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it always seems to come back to the endorphin system that raises your pain threshold, it lightens your mood, you just feel so much better. Um, and it, it makes you feel very trusting and bonded with the people you do these things with. And in addition, turns out the endorphins uh, also trigger the immune system and they huh. trigger the release of uh, natural killer cells in the white blood cell system. And those particular uh, um, uh, cells, their targets are viruses and uh, particular interest for the moment and uh, certain cancers in particular. So it, it actually has a direct health benefit, it seems. Wow. Um, 
So in your view, religion is is actually adaptive to the problem yeah. of living in settlements, yeah. allowed us to live in yeah. larger yeah. groups. And what I find really fascinating about your Well, account, let, let me just give please. you an example of that, actually. Please. Um, and it's an example close to home. So so we looked at, um, as is, uh, some work I did with Rich Sosis, who's over on the other side of the U.S., but we looked at um, uh, a big database of 19th century American millennial uh, communes. So the place place was full of um, these kind of things. So these are people try, trying to escape the wicked wickedness of the of the East Coast, clearly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the wickedness of Europe and other places. And they would go off into the desert or the mountains or whatever, and set themselves up as a little commune. Now. You had two kinds of communes, basically. A bunch of them had uh, religious frameworks and religious, you know, sometimes they were led by charismatic leaders, you know, and they were you know, places, uh, I suppose the Mormons would be an example of that, yeah. you know, starting out as a little bunch, you know, and then sort of building and building and building. Others uh, were purely secular. A lot of these were Owenite in, in their views. They were very socially minded. And in fact, uh, to the the, the um, harmony community that Owen himself, uh, Richard Owen, set up, um, to that we owe uh, public libraries in the U.S. because mm. they founded the first one. Um, they founded girls' education in the U.S. for the first time. All sorts wow. of social benefits came out of it. Uh, but the problem was um, these secular. There was something missing from these secular things. So a their foundation sizes were much smaller than the foundation size for religious communes, and B, they didn't last anything like as long. So the average size of foundation of secular communes was 50 people, and the average duration before they fell apart because, you know, the, the leader ran off with the the, the savings <laughs> of the community or something like that, that was only 10 years, whereas the religious ones um, – had an average size of foundation of 150 people, so three times bigger, and they, the average duration was 70 years. And some of them, of course, are still going. You know, the Hutterites, the uh, Mormons, uh, so on and so forth. Many you know people will be familiar with a lot of these: the Shakers, you know, the Anita community up in up in upstate New York. Um, whereas, mm. you know, you will never have heard of most of the <laughs> secular ones because they just didn't last. And I think that's because there's this commitment to the community that comes through, you know, the religious sense of belonging and, and, and the paraphernalia and, and, and so on. Yeah. It's attached, attached to in the bottom up sense. It's not necessarily that, you know, you've got sort of high priests wagging their finger over you on Sunday. But of course, they yeah. did that. but. You know, in addition, you've got this sense of commitment and belonging, which allowed you just to behave a little bit better. Well, and you've got, as you say, these rituals that are just feel good and connect you to people and improve social bonds uh, within a community. What's really fascinating to me about this account is that we've been talking about religion for 20 minutes. And, you know, I asked you, what is it and where does it come from? and, And you've given your answer so far. And not once have you said the traditional explanation, which is, well, humans were trying to explain why such and such happened. Why did the rain fall? Why did the rain not fall? The gods must be angry. The gods must be, you know, not angry. And that story that I've heard my whole life, 
always posits religion as being an alternative or an early form of science, almost that sure. it's a way of humans understanding the world. And that actually, you know, if you look back at the sort of atheism movement of the, you know, late 2000s, you know, Richard Dawkins's books and that sort yeah. of thing, the objection is mostly this is pseudoscience. It's false science. It's a bad way to learn about the world. But in your account that you've been giving for a bit now, you haven't mentioned that piece of religion at all as being, you know, a, a, an account of the creation of the universe or why do things fall down or, you know, why does the sun move through the sky? Um, does Do those sorts of questions have any, um, you know, efficacy in your uh, in your account or, or do you feel that's besides the point? Because, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, there's nothing wrong with that account, I think. I mean, it's very clear that lots of religions do that, you know, the, the particularly the kind of, well, you see it even in the shamanic type religions of all over the world, that sort of hunter-gatherer type religions, and you see it right the way through, you know, the big religions uh, as as we commonly think of them, the world religions as we have them now. This sense of being able to control and predict and control the future, being able to cure diseases, uh, you know, sort of being able to um, improve your chances in love, mm -hmm. uh, all these kind of many many sort of wishes and 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 uh, wants and and fears you know are clearly all there and i think they come in probably quite early on because what the thing about the shamanic trance based type religions is they take you off into another world and and in that other world i mean to you it seems very real presumably it's just going on in your head once you 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 go into trance um, uh, and once you're there, you're experiencing a different kind of world. And this, that in some sense, makes you wonder, you know, well, what's, how does this relate to the world we normally live in? Uh, you know, is there, a, uh, is there another world beyond the ordinary physical world that, that we're familiar with? Uh, you know, how is it that things actually happen in the physical world? It, it is a step towards science. I mean, I, I don't think anybody would want to claim it was sophisticated modern science, uh, good heavens, you know, that's been a lot of hard work to develop. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, um, <laughs> in, and a lot of education to get there, yeah. uh, uh, you know, building on the, the shoulders of giants before us, as it were. So, you know, why would you expect, um, let's say, hunter-gatherer uh, uh, folks, uh, tribes to have uh, uh, figured out relativity before Einstein got there? You know, you wouldn't. I mean, it's just, just, you know, the wrong way to view it, I think. But it's, you know, it's it's kind of how we attempt to explain the world and, and, and have some kind of control over it. And of course, if you look at the modern religion, if you look at Catholicism, let's say, in, in sort of um, um, the, the, the right at its base, as it were, the sort of ordinary person in the street, you know, these same kinds of, um, call them superstitions, if you like, um, are there, you know, the evil eye, um, yeah. you know, it was kicking around for a long time. There were still wishing wells, uh, well, still are wishing wells. We go throwing money in them for goodness yeah. sakes, you know. <laughs> I do tie, it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, we tie, you know, there are trees, uh, you know, that have special significance and people go and tie messages on there, you know, bring me luck in my exams, bring me luck in love, all these kind of things in the hope yeah. that, that, that it will be done. You know, and there's some sometimes weird and wonderful things. Now, the, 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 the most extraordinary version of this I discovered is, um, something uh, called sin eaters, uh, 
So sin eaters were very active, certainly through the 19th century and probably have a long history before that. I mean, this is not Catholicism. This is sort of good, upright, Protestant, (laughs) 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 Uh, um, uh, you know, sort of um, Methodism or something of those kinds. This was the village sin eater who would come and uh, sort of deal with your sins, in effect, uh, uh, after you died. And the way this worked is... When you laid the, you know, whoever it was died, you laid the body out in the front parlor, usually in, in a coffin, and you put a, a, a plate of um, salt and bread on their chest. And then, you know, that they would be there for a few days before the funeral. But just before the sort of funeral cortege set off to go to the church for burial, the local sin eater would come in and eat the bread um, and uh usually helped by a, a glass of um, something, um, shall we say, um, uh, uh, warming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the bread's a little dry at this point. After <laughs> having right. sat on a corpse for a couple <laughs> yeah. of days, and, not and super appetizing. Yes, and, it, and of course it's worse because the theory is that what happens is the salt helps the, the dead person's uh, um, sins be transferred into the bread and the, mm. the um, uh, sin eater then then uh, absorbs the the sins and you go off to the next to the next world as it were completely free of, of sin and, and there are these kind of uh, little rituals are very widespread in Europe so the Dutch have a, a, a version of that where, where they make dead cakes uh, as they call them and these are sort of eaten by I think in that particular case, the family around the corpse. And, you know, it's still actually practiced. I mean, it's become much more of a just a ceremony now, but it, it clearly was the same kind of thing. And, and you can see all over Europe. And, and I guess probably those kind of things go to the States. But it is just a, one, one of those kind of weird and extraordinary things. And they, 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 um, there's a kind of interesting tale here because when they were building or doing the the excavations for the big new railway station in Birmingham for the big new high-speed railway system they're putting in. Uh, They had to dig up an entire cemetery and move it. It's a 19th century cemetery. Uh, And they moved the whole lot uh, out of the way and and reburied them elsewhere. And and what they were astonished by was finding, I don't know, 15 or 20 corpses with plates on their chest, porcelain plates. And everybody went, what is going on here? You know, and then somebody remembered, oh, actually, um, this is the Sin Eaters. And the Sin Eaters were very common on the Welsh borders, which is not very far away. And the last Sin Eater died in 1906 or 1908, sometime around then. And you can go and see his grave (laughs) in the little country church now to this day. In fact, they've done it up. The local village have, you know, has become a bit of a celebrity and done it, done his grave up because actually they were viewed with deep suspicion and were often ostracized because they, wow. they, you know, they were taking everyone else's yeah. sins Sin, onto themselves. Yeah. I mean, yeah. did this last scene, is this, are we to believe this man is in hell because he had so many sins? <laughs> well, but it I seems have, like a I high price not, to pay. Indeed. But I mean, most of, most of them were in fact old, poor people, um, mm. It could be men or it could be women. And most of them were just sort of uh, destitute. And this was a good way of getting a free meal and, and, and a free drink. <laughs> and, and usually they'd you know, be given a shilling or something like that. Hey, all the corpse bread you can eat if you're yes. a sin eater. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that, so, so that's an incredible example of, of religion. People actually feeling that it has efficacy, yes. you know, a supernatural yeah. efficacy in their yeah. lives. But 
I just want to return again to the criticism that I heard growing up with a scientific background, loving to read, you know, things by rationalist writers. You know, the criticism of religion is that, well, this is false. We can't test its hypotheses and, you know, it doesn't come out. But you you seem to be making the case that religion has many other benefits to us apart yeah. from that in terms of our social organization, our connections with each other yes. it, on a, on a biological level, you're saying endorphins, yes. like it's having a physical yes. effect on us. Is that the case? Yes, absolutely. So, and I, I, there's an important issue here because I think the reason why people have, who've looked at religion from this kind of evolutionary point of view in particular, you know, have said, you know, it, it must be just an aberration. You know, it's a system going kind of haywire because it's you now out of its uh, comfort zone and uh, and and behaving oddly. Um, has been because they're looking for evolutionary benefits in terms of uh, the individual. Um, mm. You know, so they're looking at you know, does really religion increase your the number of offspring you produce? And and the answer is probably not mm-hmm. uh, in most cases. Uh, and it's obviously very bad for you if if, if you become a martyr, for example, uh, to your beliefs and, and die before uh, reproducing. Conversely, you know, the, I think at that stage, the evidence that religion actually, or religious people, actively religious people tend to be healthier and happier, hadn't really uh, come to the fore. It, it's, mm. The evidence is really quite recent, but it's very clear. Um, and, and I, you know, their conclusion in terms of the way they were looking at it is probably absolutely right. Um, although it turns out, as I said, to be or, or uh, uh, you know these health benefits, which which probably are quite good for you. But what they had forgotten, or perhaps weren't really familiar with, uh, is the fact that um, uh, the more social species, and therefore particularly the family to which we belong, the monkeys and apes. Um, what's really critical for their success, evolutionary success, is being able to create these bonded, stable social groups. And that's the problem that they have to solve. If they can solve that problem, they kind of get high high personal fitness coming through for free. But that's kind of an overriding feature. And it's it's consequence of what happens when you get a big brain. You start to be able to produce these uh, effective um, uh, groups, uh, or at mm. least, you, you know, you, you can... You can perform certain kinds of things like hunting, I suppose, more efficiently if there are several of you cooperating than if you try and do it on your own. Um, you know, it's still very much a Darwinian approach here. So so the cost accounting that you do is still at the level of the individual, but you've got this added stream coming in. And of course, that was kind of where um, uh, Bill Hamilton was pointing us with his ideas of kin selection that kind of revolutionized thinking in the evolutionary sciences back in the, the 1970s. Um, so once you realize that these, you know, these social species are not, I don't know, um, solitary uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the way you might, might sort of uh, think of most species, but are in, you know, it's it's the it's the the capacity to maintain these stable groups that's really important to them. Then uh, it puts a different picture on it. I think you can then see that anything that helps you bind the group together dramatically improves the members' ability to survive and reproduce successfully. And that's the key to it, I think, at the end of the day. But it doesn't mean to say there aren't kind of other side benefits. You know, yeah. In most cases, in evolution. You know, things evolve for one particular 
functional purpose. They're driven by one cause. But once they're in place, they open up kind of uh, other opportunities. Um, and, and that kind of thing happens all the time. If you think about the history of computers, it's a, a nice example of that. You know, computers were invented to crunch numbers, essentially, to count. Yeah. They were just and now we're using it to have this conversation. And indeed <laughs> so. And, and word processing, you know, and heaven forfend, they build our cars for us and paint them even. <laughs> um, so there are all these spin-off um, applications that once you have the basic technology there, yeah. you know, it, it opens up new opportunities. It's exactly the same with the brain. Once you've got a sort of brain that was capable of doing some fairly sophisticated computations, you know, uh, and it, moving into this sort of bonding yeah. of, of groups, well, then it, all sorts of spin-offs emerge from it, which, which uh, reinforced the value of it, of course. And I think that's where the health bits come in. They're not the direct drivers. Yeah. They're just a sort of spin-off benefit. But the centering of religion as something inherent to not just human societies, but humans almost biologically, once our brains yes. grew to a certain size, is like very revelatory to me. That's not... It's not something I had considered before. I, I'm finding this so fascinating, but we have to take a really quick break or my producer will be mad that we went too long without reading the ads. So we'll be right back with Robin Dunbar. Uh, okay, we are back with Robin Dunbar having this incredibly fascinating conversation about religion. Um, I, I'd love to talk about, you know, in the introduction to your book, you write about how our uh, our discussion of religion, our understanding of religion has really become dominated by just a few major world religions, uh, you know, uh, Christianity, Hinduism, uh, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism. I suppose we might add a couple more to that list, um, but it's a pretty short list. Uh, yep. You probably counted on your two hands. Um, but hearing you talk about it, it sounds like that's a very impoverished way of looking at uh, the the different varieties of, of uh, religious experience, to quote William James. So uh, I'd love to... I mean, it, it sounds like religion is something that takes maybe takes a lot more forms, even in modern human society than we might normally give credit. Is that the case? Uh, I think the answer is yes. And this really arises out of its origins and its origins in this kind of mystical trance based um, experiences that, that people have. Um, uh, if you look at any of these big religions, um, what's very characteristic of them is, you know, okay, so think of Catholicism as the sort of extreme example of this, where you have, you know, a, a, a very strict hierarchical structure with, a, a, um, you know, the man at the top, uh, the Pope in Rome sort of being the arbiter of, of what's right and what's wrong, the, you know, what, what's uh, uh, proper correct theology and what, what's heresy, as it were, and dictating, you know, how the system, how everybody underneath behaves and what, the, what they should believe and think. Um, despite that, if you look at the history of Catholicism, you have this constant welling up over the last 2,000 years underneath of little sects and cults, usually built around a charismatic leader, usually very small, maybe 50, maybe 100 people, something of that order, um, sometimes with very weird, um, theologies, yeah. and of course, the you know the hierarchy get absolutely um, uh, um, 
panic struck by by yeah. uh, this because one of the problems with mysticism it's uncontrollable. <laughs> Once yeah. people get going, they get carried away and they're in a different uh, plane of the, the planet, yeah. if you like. And it's very difficult to control them. So none of the world religions, or at least none of the Abrahamic religions, and remember there are five Abrahamic religions, two of which are, um, well, one, one is extinct, one is pretty nearly extinct. Um, and then the three big ones, as we're familiar with, Judaism, Islam, and, um, and Christianity, all of them have the same nervousness and dislike of um, these mystical sects. They so think of the, the attitude of both the Sunnis and the Shias towards the Sufi sects, the mystical branch of Islam, and they really do not like it. Mm. Um, and if you look at the history of, of Christ, Christi, uh, sorry, Catholicism in particular, um, you know, you can see the papacy in Rome uh, and it, its functionaries and the bishops more locally really trying to push down on, on these sort of people. Think of the Cathars in, in France, who, whom they raised an entire crusade against and literally slaughtered yeah. them, you know, because they had these weird uh, theology. I mean, it's a very successful religion. It's very far ahead of its time. They had women priests and uh, they didn't eat meat and they believed in transubstantiation, uh, 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 um, uh, ideas that had come through from India, really, in, into Europe. So they were... The, the Cathar um, sort of religion, a version of Christianity, was was you know in, way, in many ways much much more um, pleasant. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, you know <laughs> congenial. Yeah, by uh, our standards we, today, well, yeah. and certainly by our standards today. Um, uh, but boy, did they have you know? I mean, they were literally hundreds of thousands of them were just slaughtered. Wow. And they disappeared. Um, but of course, other similar sects, Mr. Luther up in up in Germany, you know, mm -hmm. his his little charismatic group starting in the same way uh, took off and survived. And of course, you know, all the Protestants, if you look at a lot of the Protestant current uh, uh, basket of Protestant um, denominations, a lot of them started off as very weird and wonderful, exotic charismatic sects of this kind. And it, you know, mm. it is not for nothing that the Shakers were called the Shakers. The Shakers yeah. were very upright. You know, by the time they arrived in the US, on the whole, they were very upright, you know, little farming communities, uh, doing very well, thank you, and, and generally very well behaved. But they'd started, you know, sort of as a charismatic set with heavy trance components. And that, that was yeah. the shaking bit. Uh, the Quakers are the same, you know, you can't get anything more law-abiding and upright, socially engaged and what have you than modern Quakers. But their name comes from their very early days when that was reflected in these kind of yeah. heavily activity-based, dance-based uh, trance states they were going into. I mean, Quakers will do go into trance now, but it's done in a very much more sophisticated yeah. and quiet, rather a Buddhist sort of way, if you like, a yogic sort of way. Um, and, and, you know, sort of, if you look at Wesley, the founder of Methodism, you know, he was tearing his hair out at, at the exotic <laughs> uh, behaviours, <laughs> uh, views of some of the, the um, uh, churches that he, he uh, chapels that he, you know, had been planted in his name. So that period when, when those kind of modern Protestant denominations were springing up, nearly all of them uh, came out of these very kind of uh, trance, 
um, uh, wild um, and sometimes seriously wild. I mean, you know, they would have made the hippies of the 1960s look like uh, kids' parties. <laughs> um, you know, the, the ranters in England and during the, the Civil War period, 16, 1640s, you know, they had a terrible reputation for getting up to all sorts of, well, goodness me, let's not go down that route. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this sounds like the the original, the origin of religion, as you say, that that mystical experience welling up again, despite the yes. the doctrine. I yes. mean, I'm reminded of a book I read about Mormonism uh, years back, but, you know, Mormonism was a, a man saying, I, I spoke to God, I had a mystical experience, and let's credit that he did, that he had that experience, you know, um, and uh, created a whole movement that came along with him. But then Mormonism's problem is, that part of the theme is that God can speak to anyone. It spoke to Joseph yes. Smith. It spoke to Brigham Young, so it can speak to you. Yep. And so Mormons are constantly going, oh, God spoke to me. And the current church is, uh, you know, sucks. And I'm yes. st starting the real church right now. And that yep. happens once a week in, you know, Utah. Uh, yep. And and yes. so this is a feature of, of all religions, yep. uh, in your view, that this is this is constantly happening. That So it's burbling up through the floor. Yeah. It just goes back to this fact that religion you know, seems to be this very personal kind of transcendental kind of experience that you have. And because of that, it tends to create these work best in these very small groups. So if you look at all of them, you know, when they start, they are literally, you know, sort of 50, 100 people around one charismatic leader who's, who's got some new message to say. Um, but also this then relates to the, the interesting question of, whether there's an optimal congregation size. And I think the experience of all, certainly the main Christian denominations, is that there, are, there is an optimal congregation size, which is actually only about 150 people. Huh, uh, don't tell if, the megachurches here in California that. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> we can discuss them in a minute if you like. That's a completely, <laughs> com, com, completely different uh, thing. But, I, you know, in terms of, uh, the way congregations seem to work, uh, if they're too small, um, they, it becomes a burden uh, on everybody for maintaining, you know, the church or whatever it is and, and, and the parish activities. Uh, if, it, if there are too many, you uh, go the other side of 150, certainly the other side of 200, then what seems to happen is people lose a sense of belonging. They, they kind of start to feel alienated. Uh, uh, there are too many factional interests pushing the parish's activities in directions they don't want to go. They start not to come so often. They don't contribute so much to the um, uh, um, funds raised by the church uh, uh, and so on. And, and, you know, this has been kind of widely discussed in the church planting literature for some time, which I kind of discovered by accident. I didn't know about it. Mm. And they came up with these numbers as well. And, These, and this, I, this is the movement a, of, of folks trying to start new churches. New churches, yes, and they churches. start church new planting. churches because the, at one level, because the, the home church, as it were, the parent church, just becomes too big. So the classic case of this actually is the Hutterites, who deliberately split their communities uh, once they get above 150. The, the average mm. size at which they split is 165-ish, something like that. Mm. Uh, and that's because they say, you know, remember these are kind of communalistic uh, 
fundamentalist uh, religious communities, farming communities, the, the um, uh, uh, Pennsylvania uh, uh, folks are um, uh, very similar in that respect, but the Dakota Hutterites are very clear that they, you know, if you let the community go much above 150 in size, it becomes unmanageable, at least unmanageable in the sense that it can be dealt with by face-to-face -face discussion among the community members. At that point, they say you have to have a police force and laws and you know, judges and sheriffs and what have you. And that is completely against their whole ethos that Christian life is communal. They're trying to kind of replicate that biblical uh, uh, commun communal sense of, uh, of life and worship in, in one, as it were. And so they split it. Um, <clears throat> and I remember going to a big meeting at one of the Vatican. The Vatican has two universities, and this was the uh, Jesuits one, the Gregorian University, and, and they'd done a big meeting for one of the Darwin centennials, which was why has theology ignored Darwin for so long was the theme of it. And I remember I gave my hmm. talk, which was a precursor of this some years ago now, sort of an early version. And uh, when I sat back in my um, uh, seat, there was a tap on my shoulder and there was this row of young men in, in dog collars and, and black suits. Uh, uh, and they leaned over and said, well, this is very interesting because we are the entire uh, clergy from a particular parish in the middle of England. And our parish is 500 people and we have three Sunday masses and the three, they attract huh. completely different groups of people who never talk to each other. <laughs> in other words, they, they and of course the different priests would take the different masses. You know, there'd be a seven o'clock yeah. mass, an eight o'clock mass, and a ten o'clock mass, something like that. Uh, and the different priests would would uh, do each one, but they also had their own little flock. As it were. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's about the the amount of time you have as the pastor, the minister of of that uh, church to really know your flock and know them well enough to be able to understand what their problems are and provide the necessary comforts and things that, you know, it, it is the pastor's job to provide. And that limit is what seems to set that figure, you know, your ability to know uh, more than 150 people uh, personally is just very limited. That's the number that's known as Dunbar's number. Uh, yeah. We all you're, suffer you're from it. You're a famous number. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, so <laughs> it, it really look. It seems to be, you know, the case that that number is, well, that size of religious grouping, congregation, if you want to call it that, um, you know, seems to be kind of absolutely deeply built into the whole structure of religion. It it, it is also then the source of problems for the big world religions in in that uh, it allows sort of uh, charismatic leaders as the um, you know, parish priest or minister or whatever you want to call him of a particular um, uh, church, you know, to to develop, you know, uh, their own theology and, and, and carry their parishioners away with them. And, and this, yeah. you know, you, you see the same thing in Islam. Islam is fractionated into more sex probably than, than, than Christianity is even. Yeah. Um, and that's because, you know, in their case, there isn't a sort of uh, top top guy that, that uh, runs it all. I mean, to some extent, you know, places like um, Iran and so, so on, you have the kind of upper mullahs, but, but most of Islam is is uh, mosque-based. The mosques are sort of a bit like 
Presbyterian parishes. You know, the elders run the mm. run the show, and and uh, the minister, you know, has a considerable amount of freedom of uh, religion. So, by the same token, you know, in 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 Islam, the the mosque elders run the mosque, but the the main imams, you know, have enormous theological freedom, really, and of course, it's it, it, it kind of allows them to kind of drift off 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 uh, piste, if you like, <laughs> come yeah. up with some you know pretty weird and wonderful stuff, which which may appeal to 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 their particular uh, congregation and, and get carry them along with it. I mean, it's a very beautiful view of religion because we so often, again, uh, especially growing up in the United States, think of religion as being very top-down, uh, yeah. controlled by yeah the the Pope on down, etc. But this is a vision in which, well, we have these large groupings, but in between those groupings or within those groupings, uh, the these these sects are constantly splitting off, growing new sprouts. Uh, you know, new new prophets arise all yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, let me just go back a a, a step to a, your earlier comment, actually, because um, <clears throat> you raised kind of an interesting point, which was pitching at you know are these things uh, you know religion? You, this is in the context of you know science and religion don't mix. Um, uh, 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 and 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 you know, there's part that big schism between and standoff between religion on one hand and and um, science on the other. And I think uh, you know that there is a sense in which that you know remains the case. So we can explain, and this is all I'm trying to do. I guess we can explain a lot of the things that happen in the context of religion, but that doesn't really affect whether or not you believe. The beliefs and experiences you have are meaningful and true, and that's mm. partly why uh, religions can fractionate in the way they do, and we end up with you know all these well tens of thousands probably <laughs> uh, very small scale sects and cults, but uh, you know and this handful of major religions when you might expect there to be just a single religion, but you know that is you know there, we. You know, if, if you believe that there is uh, a, a God in heaven running the show and, and looking after our interests, um, <clears throat> you know that's all, that pretty much is untestable, because mm -hmm. it's you know it's 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 your belief in, in your mind, and, and and we can't really get in there, um, uh, and and kind of that's also your I suppose you might say your interpretation. So we don't know what it's reflecting, if anything. Outside, but you know the rest of the universe, which is the physical universe. <laughs> uh, you know we can do stuff with, but um, and we yeah. can therefore do stuff with the, with the kind of rituals and and all those kind of things. Say, yeah, they have an effect or they don't have an effect, um, uh, 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 but not with the belief component. In the end, you either believe it or you don't. I think, and that's entirely in your choice. But you know, if you like, I can tell you stuff about why it works and why. It, works in particular uh, in your case. And, and, and it's actually interesting because a lot of the kind of shamanic, shamanic type healing practices that go on and, and which, you know, really attract people. And I guess this goes back to, you know, the mega churches uh, and the big sort of Pentecostal type churches where they have healing uh, uh, things um, is very often um, those kind of uh, treatments meted out by 
native healers, if you like, um, actually do work. And the reason yeah. they work is they're about the mind. You know, yeah. very, it, you know, okay, I, uh, you know, the sort of famously, you know, the, the, the big mega churches and Pentecostalists want to try and get people who've, uh, you know, been in a wheelchair for life to stand up and walk or, um, yeah. uh, you know, sort of uh, cure their cancers, whatever it might be. Uh, but most of the sort of everyday healers steer clear of that kind of stuff by and large because they can't do anything about it. But what they really can do something about is uh, psychological conditions because yeah. – you know, that is still how we treat them with this kind of, uh, you know, sort of more personalized and help you along the way and and, and kind of social uh, kind of engagement well, rather than. I, I've talked about in my own work on, on my show, you know, the incredible power of the placebo effect and how it's yeah. much more powerful than anyone yeah. believes. And that and that yeah. the belief that something will cure you can really cause a mental change yeah. that then activates, you know, some some features of your body's own disease fighting or, you know, reparative systems that you maybe hadn't accessed before. And real doctors or, you know, medical trained doctors make use of that when they, you know, when they treat you caringly and they tell you this treatment will work yeah. they're they're yeah. tying into that and a religious healer can do the same thing it won't probably be yeah. as effective as that great diet but it works for many people yes i think so but i was actually watching a program the other night on 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 television on on mega churches in fact um and uh, i was very struck there because these these guys were you know trying to get people who have had physical disabilities, uh, you know, to get up and walk. People who'd been in a wheelchair for 20 years, you know, and they did get up and walk. And you kind of go, wow, this is amazing. But if you think about what's going on, they have been in, in the middle, uh, uh, I, I might always almost say this, um, in the sense of, you know, they're right in the middle of a comedy performance. You know, it's really <laughs> fun. Um, you know, you're laughing a lot. The endorphins are flying because they're doing it by, you know, sort of ramping you up in, in, in a cheerleading sort yeah. of way. There's song, hymns being sung and, and, and all that kind of thing. Everybody's really hyped up. You can see it on their faces. You know, they're all standing with their arms up. And it, the one thing that's going to have done is given you a massive endorphin kick. Well, endorphin, endorphins have raised your pain thresholds enormously. Things you would never have been able to do because of the pain. Suddenly you can do, but of course it doesn't last. You know, yeah. uh, next day you're back down where you were. Uh, um, I want to make sure we get to this. Um, I believe you write in the book about how uh, so many of the world religions all began in a very similar geographical area or a, or a relatively mm -hmm. small geographical area compared to the many, many places that uh, folks have lived across the world. And why is that? Yeah, so this is these are the axial age religions, as it were, which we've known about for 100 years, probably, maybe a bit more. Um, if you look at the origin of all the major world religions we have now, and also all the um, uh, monotheistic religions of, of, of tribal monotheistic religions, um, many of which are associated with herders, uh, pastoralists, um, they all seem to originate in a very narrow band uh, across the, essentially the top of Africa. Um, uh, this is the uh, subtropical zone. So it's the sort of a narrow band climatically between the tropics themselves and the kind of northern whole Arctic uh, um, 
climates that, that we live in. So these are the kind of rather nice Mediterranean sort of climates. And, um, you know, that band goes all the way around the world. All the religion, these major religions start in uh, um, that band uh, in, in sort of Af at the top end of Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly, and then across through Persia into India, the Hindu Valley, um, and running through as far as the, the the Yellow and Yangtze River basins, the great the Great Basin in in China. They all started about the same time in that period, uh, two to three thousand uh, years ago. Um, and what strikes me as interesting about that, and which I don't think anybody has ever noticed before, I mean, they all say, well, the axial age, you know, that comes at a particular time period. What they haven't really noticed is actually it occurs in this extremely narrow, it's only 12 degrees of latitude um, uh, in that narrow band. And what's characteristic of that band is that it's the area that minimizes disease load, pathogen load. So pathogens are very high at the equator and then die away quickly once you're outside the, the tropics. Um, but at the same time, they are not into the kind of northern and uh, the same kind of goes at the south end, um, uh, those kind of Arctic, more um, uh, northern hemisphere uh, winters uh, when nothing grows. <laughs> uh, so you're in a band which is really quite unique in which population growth is maximized because uh, what tends to happen in the tropics is it's disease load that holds the population down, not not food production, because food production is very good at the tropics. It's, it's hot, sweet and sloppy, as they used to say about cocoa growing areas in West Africa. You know, the con growing conditions are exceptionally good. Stuff just, you, know, you can't keep it down, it keeps growing. Whereas uh, above the uh, subtropical zone at, at higher latitudes in Europe and obviously in uh, um, North America and so on, you know, things get very cold in winter. You've got no pathogens because the winter kills them off, but you can't grow anything either. And it's just this narrow zone which seems to have allowed populations to explode um, sometime starting around 10,000 years ago. Uh, and, and, and that seems to be what kicked the increasing population size kicked ah. in the rise of the doctrinal religions. And then the problem then happens around about 4,200 years ago, there's what's known as the, the um, uh, 4,000, 4.2,000 uh, um, uh, climate event, which is a crash right the way across that band, uh, across huh. the whole of Africa, uh, Asia uh, and China in, in climate. The, the, Basically, it stops raining, <laughs> mm. um, uh, 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 and, and things really go from from very good to very bad within a couple of hundred years. This sounds like you're you describing know, California right now. Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's all those vines. But I mean, remember, you know, sort of they were growing growing vines, <laughs> grapevines in the Sahara, uh, wow. uh, pretty much until then. I mean, it, it was so well watered the Sahara up until then. They had hippos and baboons and crocodiles, also. Wow. Of stuff which you now have to go eight or a thousand miles to the south to see um, as a result of this the you know expansion of the Sahara and so what that produced was massive population movements and, and what's very characteristic of that period is a group of people known as the sea people 
we kind of don't know who these people are, but they appear out of nowhere, mainly from Greece. So we'll try, try not to blame the Greeks okay. this time. Um, but that's where they seem to come from. And they seem to have been moved by, you know, this, this population, climatic induced population crisis, looking for new places to settle. They, 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 they lay waste basically to most of the Eastern Mediterranean. And this is sort of, you know, if you look at the, the archeological sites for that period, you know, there's sort of like half uh, a couple of feet of solid charcoal where they burnt all these city states, cities, um, you know, that are around the coastal plains of, of the Levant and Turkey and, and uh, modern day Egypt. And exactly the same thing happens in India, the Harappan culture, uh, there's a you know, sort of um, big state, as it were, in its own right, just collapses. The same thing happens in China. And I think in the crisis that that produced is what kicked in the, the rise of the um, uh, axial age religions, so these, this kind of <clears throat> new sense of a, uh, you know, sort of moral, moral high God, as they're called, you know, a single God who kind of really is going to look after our interests. And, and, the result uh, of, of that population growth, yep. meaning that Crashing. there has to be an adaptation to, yep. uh, to account for it. Uh, so you have the growth of these religions and then, well, widespread disaster. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I'm, I'm forecasting, you know, I mean, I think that's also, I mean, it's kind of, I don't think anybody's ever really looked at it closely, but I, you know, I'm kind of get the sense generally that when you have those kind of disasters, you get an upwelling of religion. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever the local religion is. You know, well, can I, man, this, it's really fascinating because you also talked quite a bit, you know, we talked about the, uh, the Mormons and, and all these other late 19th century, you know, American new religious movements, which was a period yeah. of, of huge, you know, efflorescence of, of all these different groups. And that was also a period of wide population growth in the United States, that that yeah. was that was the boom uh, of the United States in many ways, or at least one of the many boom times. But um uh, the, the, the sociological explanation of, of religion is so fascinating. I want, I want to touch on one other question, which is, uh, you know, you talked about that mystical experience, uh, being at the root of religion. Um, and, uh, that reminds me of, you know, when I was studying for my bachelor's in philosophy, reading William James and the varieties of religious experience. And he writes about how all these religions have at their root that, you know, someone will have a religious experience where they're communi communing directly with God or with a larger presence and consciousness. They tend to experience that all things are one. And they also tend to have a certainty of truth about it, that there's these, these common features we see in this again and again. And then a few years ago, I read uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And he points out this is also true of psychedelic experiences that, uh, you know, often psychedelic drugs will cause this sort of experience, which is why I made that joke about someone eating a mushroom earlier in the yep. podcast. Yep. Um, I I'm just curious uh, how uh, psychedelics as a something, you know, something that interacted with uh, religious experiences very early. Is that play a part in the story that you tell or is that a little bit of an overhyped uh, element that people talk about? No, I think I think, uh, well, there's two different things there, maybe. One is um, it, it clearly is um, these trance states uh, and being able to go into trance states um, 
seem to be so important a feature of religious experience and early religious experience and the, and the kind of bottom end of the wellings up, as it were, that occur under the big modern religions, that, um, you know, the desire to go into trance states, you know, clearly becomes the driving force. Uh, the problem is how you do it. And, you know, I suspect that what probably happened was, you know, people going into deep caves and the kind of disorientating environment that they're in kind of uh, blows your mind, literally, as, mm -hmm. as they say. Um, but, you know, how else do you do it? And what seems to happen is we found various kind of tough ways of doing it, which are essentially, you know, sort of um, cranking the handle uh, big time, you know, dance. I think of some of the... Um, ceremonies of uh, sweat house ceremonies of, of the plains indians in north america for example which were designed to to take off they, they're associated with physical punishment you know sort of not necessarily mm -hmm. hanging from straps on your on your <laughs> chest as it were but you know sort of going for, for big long runs in the cold and diving into you know ice cold water and uh, these kind of physical um, uh, pain inducing things and then going into the sweat house, uh, you know, it, it, it ramps up the endorphin output and then that triggers um, going in. Well, you know, this is very hard work, um, uh, you know, and then so clearly what's happened is somebody's discovered stuff out there that does the job for you much quicker in various, and there are loads of them you know shed loads of them uh, yeah. these plants uh, you know most of them sort of semi-poisonous um, but if you don't overdo it give you these highs and and you know one of those was opium um, mm. uh, um, uh, hash uh, all these things uh, belladonna all these kind of uh, famous um, sort of medieval and, and, and into the 19th century even, um, medical treatments all had their origins, it seems, as uh, aids to entering trance. Um, uh, and, and they occur all around the world, uh, uh, wherever you look, um, uh, you find them. So, so there, there is kind of that sense to it. I mean, it, it's clear that you can also induce trance in other ways. So if you think of the kind of Buddhist tradition or the yogic tradition of inducing it by calmness and what it is about breathing control principally and mm -hmm. breathing control triggers the endorphin system. So that's how they're doing it. Ah. Um, you know, so there are different ways of, 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 of doing it. Um, you know, but, but there's the, the cheap and cheerful way, if you like, and then there's the sophisticated, but hard to learn way. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, along come the hippies in the sixties and obviously having, grown up in the 60s as a student and I, you know, famously can't remember it because I wasn't there. I was there rather than I was getting <laughs> <started>. <laughs> right? <laughs> if you can remember the, if you can remember the 60s, you definitely weren't there. <laughs> um, you know, they, they latched onto a lot of this stuff. And of course, there'd been a lot of people going out to India, you know, traveling and stuff and, and, and getting into ashrams and uh, all these kind of things and being exposed to these kind of um, uh, Hindu, particularly Hindu-based um, uh, religious practices and coming back to, to, to the States and going off and living in their comrades, their communes. And, you know, they had the characteristic then of kind of sex and cults. And a lot of them spawned eventually, you know, the sort of, more weird and wonderful kind of things like the Heaven's Gate cult uh, that, that um, you know, survived until 
you know the two thousands, you know, who 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 tied all their stuff into, you know, sort of um, uh, spaceships coming from yeah. nether parts of the universe with superior beings, uh, you know, and that kind of, you know, it's almost a theology, if you like, uh, in in the sense that you know it's a belief in in somewhere in the universe there are superior beings that are going to come and rescue us and, and uh, lift us up, and you can see these this sense of being raised up onto a higher plane of consciousness, which is exactly where the kind of hippie stuff all started. If you go back to um, Huxley and, uh, and the doors of perception and, uh, and, and hell, uh, his original experiences in California playing with or trying out mescaline and so on. And, 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 and that spawned this kind of uh, movement out there, uh, you know, that, um, uh, you know, you could, these kind of, substances as it were uh, uh, could lift you onto a higher plane of consciousness um and those kind of views you know they go back to the theosophists in in the 19th late 19th century yeah. uh, um uh having the same views you know there are the 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 the, the elite uh who've arrived at um uh, you know sort of uh, these new different planes of consciousness, they will live forever, they, they've mastered, you know, sort of eternal life and all these kind of things, which is sort of this mismatch of uh, kind of um, Eastern philosophies and, and, and uh, uh, Western yeah. sort of uh, uh, views and uh, machinery for <laughs> entering yeah. trance states and stuff like that. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, it, it, it's just reflecting, I think, um, uh, this very um, uh, point that I'm kind of trying to make in the book, that actually the root of all this stuff um, it is in these trance experiences, these experiences of the transcendental that you have when yeah. the mind kicks into uh, these trance states. And, you know, sometimes they can be experienced as completely secular um, and sometimes they clearly seem to be experienced as sort of sinking into the, you know, the mind of God, if you like, and all the yeah. major religions, you know, uh, Sikhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, all have expressions that essentially say that, you know, you raise yourself into trance state, you, 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 you enter into the Godhead, as it were, you become, you, you, you subside into the Godhead and your mind is, is unified with God. Now, you know, that probably, ref my view would be that that probably reflects just combination of both your your experiences and the culture you come from, which is feeding mm -hmm. into it, you know, and how how you view it. Whether it's true or not, well, that's a very different question. But those, uh, well, it's interesting that you raise that because because here's what I'd like to talk about for the end is that, you know, I, uh, I I've identified myself as an atheist for many many years, and that's because uh, again I don't you know, the, the religious claims about the world that I was brought up around, I didn't agree with that there's a God who created the universe. And like, I don't, you know, I have a more scientific worldview. I don't agree with those truth statements. And therefore, you know, I'll call, call myself an atheist. But the things that you're describing, the, you know, an experience of transcendence, a trance state, and also the social connections that you're talking about, um, the, you know, the, the, the social endorphins and those sorts of things, yeah. those all, those all sound wonderful. And, 
And and it, they, those sound to me like, A, well, those are not things I really experienced in, during the time of my life when I did go to a Christian church. I, I never entered trans states. We, you know, we sang songs and the songs were yes. nice to sing. Yes. You know, I liked yeah. the singing and I liked the food, you know, but <laughs> but there weren't a lot of trans states and there weren't a lot of, it yeah. didn't feel like reciprocal grooming in, yeah. in, a, in a very nourishing way. But when you describe those things, I'm like, God, those sound so wonderful. I, I wish I could experience them in my own life. And so I'm curious if a, you, these are, these are experiences that you encourage people to try to have. And, uh, uh, yeah, are those, uh, yeah, are those, are those things that, that we should seek because they uh, are good for us, uh, either personally or socially? Yeah, I, I, I think on balance, I have to say it's probably good for you. I mean, even going to very staid, you know, dare I say it, Episcopalian um, <laughs> services, <laughs> uh, um, maybe Presbyterian services uh, more so, are probably not going to get you into trance states. But it does raise the endorphin levels, quite demonstrably so, and you do feel more bonded even so. Um, you know, if you really want to experience trance, then I think you'd probably best, best go with the Pentecostalists and do the job properly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it requires a bit more effort, you know, all this dancing and stuff in the aisles, that, 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 that's the way to do it. Um, but, you know, however you do it, it probably does do you some good. Uh, that's very clear. I think it, it makes you kind of happier and it makes you um, healthier, most likely. Uh, it seems so you know there are decided benefits that are worth it and and it does yeah. create a sense of community the problem with it the downside is when it starts to get very large and then and then because all our bonding mechanisms the secular everyday friendship type bonding mechanisms as well as the religious ones are all built on an us versus them principle that that's how at the, at the sort of cognitive level that's what sort of creates the sense that you know uh, we are a community we are a community because we know the secret of life like and therefore you know we're different that's why we're different to the guys in the next valley who do all this kind of weird stuff um and that clearly leads to these you know awful history of large-scale religion in which you end up with these massive religious wars and you know, either internally and you know, think of the sheer uh sunni uh split in islam uh you know mm -hmm. which happened you know with, within a decade of, of the death of muhammad um, wow. was, yeah <laughs> they didn't hang around um the same you know much the same in christianity of course you know a thousand years later in uh, with with the reformation and of course there'd been all sorts of um uh, uh attempts to 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 launch um alternative versions particularly in the eastern mediterranean and Egypt, right the way through from you know within a hundred you know the first century uh, AD, uh, you know, there were, well, I mean, many people would say, you know, when we describe, call it Christianity, we're calling it by the wrong name. Hmm. It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It was in, it was St. Paul that created Christianity huh. off the back of, 
this little sect in 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 Judea, you know, and it was really oh. he, he that gave it its modern characteristic. And so we ought to call it Paulinity you know, if, wow. if we were doing the job properly. Wow. Um, yeah, it's yeah, like you but, call Calvinism yeah. after Calvin and all and all yeah, that. Exactly. You know, yeah. Lutheranism. So, you know, I mean, you know, who cares really what names you give these things? Uh, you know, there's a there's a sort of development there, but it's reflecting the fact that there were constant um, um, uh, attempts to reinvent it in in, in yeah. uh, kind of very different ways. Most of which were were heavily suppressed. Like all the early church councils in the first five hundred years, and there were a lot, were attempts to suppress potential schisms. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 by by you know various um, you know sort of charismatic leaders coming in with 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 new ideas. Um, so you know it, it it's those kind of you know of course we I suppose you might say you know with resurgence and in this with, between Islam and Christianity now at one level. I mean you know it's not to. Uh, blame uh, 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 Islam as a whole, which is on the whole, uh, uh, you know, as as decent a religion as Christianity is. But mm-hmm. you know, you, it, it, it's it's the power of religion to whip up uh, mobs, if you like, and, and yeah. persuade people to you know, literally go into battle on behalf of your particular beliefs is second to none. You know, yeah. Um, there's something odd about this transcendent fact. In fact, I talk a bit right at the end about is it possible to have a secular religion, you know, that would have the same effect. And I, th- I mean, you could have them, uh, and people are trying, but they don't seem to have the carrying power. There's something magical about the kind of transcendent component of, of conventional religions that gives them enormous power over people. And, and that's when you hit... You know, the train comes off off the rails completely at that point, unfortunately. Mm. So I, my view is keep it small and it does a wonderful job and it, it kind of uh, helps create better communities and we'd probably all be better for it. I mean, besides the music is wonderful. <laughs> oh, the music is incredible. It's the best part. And, and this, yeah. honestly, just last night I went to a concert by, I don't know if you know the the jazz musician Alice Coltrane, the wife of John yeah, Coltrane. Yeah, yeah. And she became, after his death, she became very involved in Hindu mysticism and she started uh-huh. an ashram, a religious right. community. Yeah. And the religious community was was based so much around music. And she, she passed away a number of years ago, but it was a concert by the remaining members of her religious community. And first of all, the mixture of you know, the black American music, blues, jazz style with Hindu uh, chanting is like, was out of this world, but also the religious ecstasy, you know, that of of chanting and and dancing. And it was, you know, such an incredibly powerful uh, performance that, you know, I've, I've always had that paradox within myself of I'm not a religious person, but religious music is the music that I love the most. Um, that more than a love song, yes. I love a song about, you know, about God for some reason. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. I'm with you all the way on this one. <laughs> has, uh, you know, talking to you has really made me reevaluate the way uh, I position religion in my own life. Has, has studying this changed your own view of your own religious practice not not to make that too personal a question but you know have you uh uh reconsidered or or changed any of your own practices as a result uh, not really i mean i i kind of um grew up in a an interesting uh 
religious environment because my family were all kind of Presbyterians in various forms. Indeed, my grandparents were missionaries, <laughs> heaven for fan. Um, uh, but I, I went to a Catholic boarding school as a child. I grew up in Africa. Uh, and so I was, you know, sort of given both ends of the Christian spectrum. And at the same time, because of where we lived in East Africa, because my father grew up in India, he was born and grew up in India, and he spoke Hindi uh, um, uh, uh, bilingually, as it were, you know, we mixed a lot with the Indian communities there. So I knew about all these other religions, Sikhism and, and Hinduism and Islam, the Indian end of Islam. Of course, this was coastal East Africa. So I, I knew about Islam through, through you know, the sort of uh, uh, household servants that I grew up with and their children and, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I was immersed in this very complex, multiplex religious environment uh, and, you know, that's where I learned to to like Gregorian chant. <laughs> it was probably the finest music ever written. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so I had this deep immersion in it, so I can kind of see where it's all coming from, if you like. But I think by the time I was uh, certainly later teenager, I, I decided this, you know, um, I had become, become an atheist, effectively. Yeah. There was no um, underlying truth to the to, to, to these belief systems but it because of that background i think it made me kind of both sensitive to being able to look at it and see it from the inside but also look at it from the outside as the scientist at the same time and say okay this is really amazing and weird stuff going on you know can we actually explain you know how it works and why it's there and, and when it yeah. evolved and do you ever find those sorts of, and I swear this will be the last question, but I just find it so fascinating to talk to you. This is, this is uh, interviews going long for us, but I, I'm having trouble stopping. Do you uh, find yourself uh, though you, you are an atheist, um, you know, seeking out any elements of the religious experience uh, you know, whether that is, you know, a trance state or, you know, that sort of community experience because you, you understand those benefits or you, you know, because that, that's that's often I mean, I was I was doing that a little bit of myself at, at that concert the other night. Right. I was seeking a little. Right. Bit of that, I yeah. Think. Yeah. Uh, not directly. I mean, I think I'm, you know, sort of get close to it. If I, I go and listen to a, a sort of uh, Palestrina mass in a church you know, in a mm -hmm. nice, dark, candlelit <laughs> Uh, context as you might have in, in the winter, you know, and you've got a, a, a very good choir singing. In, in Latin, yeah. so you, you know, there's this mystical, there's a bit of mysticism attached already to the language because although I, you know, know a fair amount of Latin, um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it just flows over you. It, it, you don't hear the yeah. words, and uh, you know, you, you you can absorb it, and it's it's very relaxing and very pleasant. But I w I wouldn't say this is I'm I'm going to the point of trance on any of this stuff. Probably because <laughs> I'm kind of holding back <laughs> <laughs> well look if you ever want to come to la and and do some mushrooms or something and maybe we can get ourselves into a trance state sometime <laughs> let me know um it, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you robin I, I, the book uh sounds incredible um folks if you want to pick what tell what is the name of the book again robin it's uh how religion evolved and why it endures 
Uh, if you want to pick that up, uh, you can head to our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books or your public library or wherever you get your books. Robin, thank you so much for coming on the show. A great pleasure. Well, thank you once again to Robin Dunbar for coming on the show. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. If you did, you can check out his book once again at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. As always, I want to thank our $15 a month Patreon subscribers, Adam Simon, Adrian, Alan Liska, Anne Slagle, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Charles Anderson, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Conover, my dad, thank you, dad, Drill Bill, M, Hillary Wolken, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Mark Long, Michael Warnicky, Michelle Glittermum, Miles Gillingsrud, Nicholas Morris, Paul Mauck, Rachel Nieto, Robin Madison, Samantha Crockett, Spencer Campbell and Susan E. Fisher. If you want to join them, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover to join our community. Our producer is Sam Roudman. Our engineer is Ryan Connor. Thank you, Andrew WK, for our theme song. The fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at, at Adam Conover or AdamConover.net, wherever you get your social media. Until next time, we thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factually. Factually.